Uh, it's John chapter 11, verses 37 through 44. It's not my joke. I stole this joke, but poor Lazarus has been in the grave now for what's it been, three weeks, four weeks since we started this series. And so we probably ought to, ought to get him out. Jesus only left him in there for four days. <clears throat> and uh, we've left him longer than that. So if you'll uh, turn to your Bibles, I say John chapter 11, verses 37 through 44. Our title for today, I made it a question. It's a question, and that is, when did this miracle begin? When did it start? So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we go through. When do miracles start? When do they begin? When does this story actually begin? Because in a little bit, we're going to read about Jesus doing something, and this is my struggle. This is what I was trying to do and racking my brain the last couple of weeks on how to do this, how to deliver the impact of someone being raised from the dead. We really don't have any frame of reference for this. There is nothing like this. This is something that only God can do. We've never seen anything like this. We've never heard anything like this. We've never experienced anything like this. This really is the true finger of God, the true power of God coming down to earth and doing something only God can do. And so how do we, how do we feel the impact of that? How do we visualize that? How do we get it not just in our minds, not just in our thinking, but in our souls, that we understand that this is a real place, these are real people, this is a real event. And Jesus actually stood at a grave that was opened up and said, come out. And a man who had been dead for four days came out. That is absolutely incredible. So that's our goal for today is for to deliver that, and then also to think about our mission and our purpose and what that does for us. What does this miraculous view, this heavenly view, this supernatural view, how does it impact us tomorrow? How does it change how I'm going to act to the people around me tomorrow, understanding that the creator of the universe raise this man from the dead, and that one day all of us, each and every one of us, will hear the voice of God and will come out from the grave. Every single one of us will. So let's turn in our Bibles. I say we're in John chapter 11, verses 37 through 44. It says, But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Man, that's good stuff. So we're going to get to Lazarus, but like I said, we want to start off with our mission, with our application part of this. And I want to start off with a question. 
And that question is, what is liberty? What is freedom? We talk about it quite a bit, don't we, in the context of America? We talk about liberty and we talk about freedom and what that means. I want to give you a little bit of a different definition. Because most of the time when we talk about liberty, when we talk about rights in America, we talk about it in terms of doing what we want to do. We talk about it in terms of we have individual rights, we have individual freedoms, and we don't want those to be infringed upon. I want to change that a little bit. I want you to think about liberty in terms of it being a shield. The reason I say that is that, see, each of us, we have a mission. We have a purpose. We have a God-given role to fulfill. And our definition of failure, a life that is not lived well, is if we fail to complete our mission, if we never achieve the purpose for which we were made. And freedom, or liberty, is the shield that guards us from being stopped while we are pursuing our duty or our mission. So when we talk about freedom, when we talk about liberty, it should be in that context. Is there anything stopping me from my duty or from my mission? Not, can I do what I want or can I say what I want? Is my mission, is my purpose compromised? If we go to Acts 2.42, it's there in your message map. I've been hounding this for weeks, and it says we're devoted. We're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Then I put in here also John 4, 23 through 24. It says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. So that question of freedom is, can I be devoted to the Bible, or is there something stopping me? Can I meet together with other Christians? Can we worship? Can we break bread and pray together? What about the other aspects of our mission? Can we care for the poor? Can we feed and clothe our brothers and sisters? Can we care for widows and orphans? And can we visit those in prison? Or is our liberty, is our freedom compromised? Has our shield been broken down that we cannot fulfill our mission? So in our message for today, we want to keep an eye out because there are some obedient believers, and when we read about them, we want to think about our mission, our purpose, and what that means in the context of America in 2022. So again, we want to ask that question, when did this miracle begin? So if we flip back, we're going to start with kind of a recap of where we are that got us to this place. Remember that Jesus was in Jerusalem, if we flip back to chapter 10, that's where he healed the blind man. Jesus was then confronted by some Jews and some of the Pharisees. And at the end of that confrontation, they picked up stones to kill him. It's in John uh, 10.35, I think it is. We'll get there in just a little bit. But at the end of that confrontation, the Jews picked up the stones to kill him, and he walks away. So Jesus and the disciples, they leave. If you flip over to John 10, 40, they went north of Jerusalem uh, to to Judea. Oh my gosh, to Judea. And it's about a day's walk. They went to a a town called Bethany. I call them Bethany 1 and Bethany 2 
because there's two Bethanies in our, in our stories for today. So they went to this Bethany that's about a day's walk north of Jerusalem. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. And it's in the place, if you flip over to John 3, 23 through 36, where John the Baptist's followers confronted Jesus and the disciples. And again, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But Jesus says, return to this Bethany, this place where John the Baptist preached and baptized. And Jesus is preaching here, and he is having great success. John 10, 40, 42 says, and in that place, many believed in Jesus. He's having success there. Meanwhile, in this other Bethany, in the Bethany that's about two miles from Jerusalem, a family has suffered a terrible tragedy. Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, became suddenly ill. It's very quick. And then he died. And we did this a couple of weeks ago, but let's look briefly at these names. So Bethany means house of poverty or house of the poor. We want to, again, to compare that if we want to look at Bethel, the house of God, or Bethlehem, the house of bread. Bethany means house of poverty or house of the poor. And then we have our characters. We have Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Mary is Miriam, Moses' sister. John MacArthur calls Miriam the savior of saviors, the deliverer of deliverers. Miriam's the one who puts Moses in the basket and sends him down the river and then makes sure that her mom gets sent as, as the baby's wet nurse. Amazing lady. Martha is myrrh, just like the gift that Jesus received. Myrrh was one of the gifts, and it's, it smells good. It's a valuable gum extract. It smells good, and also it has medicinal purposes. It's an analgesic. And then we have Lazarus, which is Eleazar, whom God helps. Whom God helps. And again, if you take a trip to Jerusalem, there is a place you can go to. Um, there's a Muslim town named after Lazarus. It's a, the, the Muslim version of Eleazar. And there's a clay cave there that you can go to that they claim is the cave where Lazarus was laid. But that's not confirmed. We don't have independent verification of that. But you could pay money to go on a tour and go there and go to this cave and walk through it if you wish. So Jesus and the disciples are in Bethany too. They're up north. When they receive word that Lazarus is sick, this messenger comes. It's about a day's journey. He comes up and he, they say, Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And more than likely, Lazarus was already dead when Jesus said this. Remember, they say that he's in the tomb for four days. So if it took the messenger one day to get there, and they wait there for two more days before heading back to get that four days, that means that Lazarus had to have died maybe even before the messenger got outside of town. So Lazarus gets sick. They send this guy off. By the time he gets there, Lazarus is probably already dead. And then Jesus says this amazing thing. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So Jesus and the disciples, they stay two more days in Bethany before heading back home to, uh, to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And meanwhile, they've already held the funeral for Lazarus, and they have begun their seven days of mourning. So Lazarus was wrapped in linen, and he was wrapped in spices, and he was placed on a shelf in a cave. And more than likely, it's a, it's a common burial site. They, remember, these guys are using hand tools. There's no power tools at play at all can't believe the Milwaukee Corporation hasn't even been invented yet. They don't have a cordless drill among them. 
So they find a natural cave, and they carve it out, and they hand chisel shelves in there, and so then they could lay bodies on those. And they have a, a stone, usually a round stone, that they would hand carve out, and they would, on the ground, they would chisel out a little channel. And that way you could roll the stone back, put a body in, and then roll the stone back over the mouth of the cave. And that would keep the smell in and keep the critters out. Jews didn't embalm. If you look at, um, I don't know how many of you guys like going to the museum when you were kids and reading about, you know, the pharaohs and the mummies and how they did all those embalming processes. Western embalming is very similar. Removing organs and putting them in fluids and doing all of those things. We do very similar processes unless you're, you're cremated. The Jews didn't do any of that. The body would be kept whole. It would be wrapped in linen clothes and covered with spices. Notice, ladies did that. It was ladies' work, and it was unclean work. Touching a corpse made you unclean. You had to be washed after that and certified by the priest before you could be taken back into society. So Lazarus, they've already had the funeral for him. He's already been placed inside this tomb. The the stone has been rolled over. And Jesus and the disciples wait two more days before coming back. And it says, it says to us right there that that Lazarus has been dead for four days. I thought about getting a pound of hamburger and setting it out this week to bring in as a, as a, as a descriptor, as, a, as an illustration. First of all, that would have been kind of a waste of food, right? And then <clears throat> you all would have hated me because the whole time we were here talking, it just would have smelled. But everyone here gets an idea of what that's like. I was thinking about how many of you guys uh, with, the, with the new year after the holidays over cleaned out your fridge? Anyone? You don't have to go through and clean out the fridge or defrost one of the freezers. And you guys get that mystery Tupperware, and it's like the green fuzzies on top, and you're like, can we just throw the whole Tupperware out? Let's just, we'll get a separate bag, we'll put that in there, we'll take that out to the trash, take the trash outside, put something over the top of the trash can so the raccoons don't get in, and we'll wait for trash day for that to go away. And that's just some leftover food that's been in there for a couple of weeks. Everyone can imagine what happened to Lazarus' body as he has been dead for four days. He's been in this tomb for that long. So, here they are. He is in the throw the Tupperware out with the leftovers stage of decay. And Jesus tells the disciples they are headed back to Judea, back to Bethany, back to Lazarus. The disciples remember... John 10, 31. Apparently they've read their Bible or they were there, one or the other. And they, because they remember that some Jews there picked up some stones to kill Jesus. And then verse 8 says, But Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? And Jesus answers with a parable. It's John eleven nine. He says, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. It's similar to John 9, 3 through 5. It says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He said, But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Then verse 4, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. But while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. If we wanted to tease that out, Why was this man born blind? That happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why did Lazarus get sick and die? Now, this isn't always the case, but this case, why did Lazarus get sick and die? 
It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. It tells us what to expect. It also tells us that this tragedy will end in God and Jesus being glorified. So I want to think about God's glory for a moment. Again, our our point is to deliver the impact of this resurrection. So I put it in in your bulletin, but think about some examples that you can think about of when God's glory has touched the earth. I was thinking about, you know, like Moses and the burning bush or the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day that, that led the Israelites or think about the still small voice in the, in the storm or think about when God's glory filled the Holy of Holies in the tamper, tabernacle or later at the temple or think about Moses meeting with God on the mountain and receiving the Ten Commandments or maybe the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus and Peter and James and John on the mountain meet with Moses and, and Elijah. Those are times when God's glory was manifest, was present, when people saw God's glory and they were faced with his holiness and righteousness. And Jesus says, this is going to be like those times. God will be glorified and Jesus will be glorified. Then Jesus says this parable about appointed times. We know the end. Glory is coming. Resurrection is coming. Death will be defeated. Then Jesus says there is night and there is day. And he says, we mortals, us, not him, we are powerless in the face of night and day. Night comes, day comes. We have no power, no say over the times appointed to night and day. Jesus says, daytime is for walking and for working. Nighttime is for enduring and stumbling. These are times that are appointed by God, and we should do something. We should work and walk when it is day, and we should rest and endure when it is night. And notice, nothing can stop Jesus. Nothing can stop us from working when it is day. Jesus is not afraid of going back to Jerusalem because God has appointed the time for his work, and nothing can stop him. So we cannot be afraid to work when it is time to work. We're talking about freedom. We're talking about that being a shield. When we are appointed time to work, time to be on our mission, that's not a time to be afraid. God has appointed that time. He has given us the freedom to do what we must do. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to face hardship. That doesn't mean we're not going to face persecution. But it does mean we will be successful in our mission. So we cannot be afraid to work when it is time to work. So do we think about that? Do we think about what that means for us and for our mission? Or do we stop ourselves out of fear, out of fear of opposition, even when we know it is an appointed time of work? Think about the coming night. Have we made preparations to make sure that we can endure when the night comes? So verse 4 says, glory is coming. Verse 9 says, walk and work during the daytime, and then Jesus waits those two days before returning to Bethany. And remember, this is according to God's plan and God's timing. We must surrender to God's will. So I asked a couple of questions at the beginning. Have you guys thought about your mission and your purpose? Last week or a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Mary's worship 
and Martha's faith. So let's get to the root. Let's get to the root of our mission and of our purpose. And it starts right here in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, with the greatest commandment. Our mission and our purpose starts right here with love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything else we do, prayer and worship and devotion to the scriptures, grow from a love of God. When we are baptized, we are saying a vow. We say, I choose God. I choose to love and honor and cherish God forever. I take Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. We make a vow, a promise to love God with everything we have. So when we pray, we pray like we're talking to your father, like a friend who is also the creator of the universe. When we worship, we want to show love for God. When we serve, whether it is teaching the word or or meals or any other ministry, we do so because we see our brothers and sisters suffering and we don't want them to suffer because we love them. Right? Now, I promise that's going to come to play a little bit further down the road. But for now, it's God's timing, God's plan. And God's plan should not change our devotion to mission and to prayer. See, the disciples, they still contend with Jesus, even though he has already told them what is going to happen. Mary and Martha fall at his feet, but they ask a question. They say, man, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. In the face of God's plan, our devotion should not change. That changes verse 16, doesn't it? Listen to Thomas's steely resolve. You can picture him like Clint Eastwood or, or Bruce Willis. He's part cynic, but he's part practical, and he is full of courage and resolve. Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. And if there is something that we can put on a sticky tab for this week, we can put verse 16. Wherever Jesus is going, let us also go, even unto death. (coughs) Excuse me. Let us also go, that we may die with him. So, did the miracle start there? Did the miracle start right there when they resolved to head back? When did it start? Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. The mourners have gathered. The house is full of people. I was thinking that, you know, this place is called Bethany, house of the poor. Jesus didn't go to Rome and raise Caesar's son. Jesus didn't go to Cairo and raise the Pharaoh's son. He went to a slum, the barrio, the projects. In my hometown, it was across the tracks. That's where he went to raise Lazarus from the dead. And notice how tight-knit this community is. There's nothing to tell us the social status of Mary and Martha and Lazarus except this. They have a house, and there are hundreds of people present for this miracle. Mary and Martha were not alone in their grief and their mourning. 
those mourners will become witnesses to the resurrection of Lazarus. So we've talked about our love for God and we've talked about our love for others as the source of our mission. What we want to do is we want to then grab a negative. And it's a negative from our cultural, cultural bias that we need to remove from our faith. And it's okay. We all have it. But we need to strip it out of our faith. As Americans, we have a materialist view, a materialist view of the world. And it's a view centered on what is real, what is material, what we can taste and touch and smell and feel. And 90% of the time, materialism serves us well, right? It keeps us grounded. It helps us make sense of the world. However, we can become materialistic where we worship the material, right? Where things like food and sports and shopping or entertainment, they become like a drug or worse, a god where they become our desire, where our thoughts are consumed with the material, where they become our passion. Our free time is consumed with the material, or they become our comfort. We seek refuge and rest in a material thing instead of the Lord. And worst of all, these material things corrupt our faith. So let me illustrate. You guys have your Bibles there. So go ahead and, and look over at, um, at Mary and Martha. If we go over to verse 32, it says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How many of you guys, when you hear that, thought, why did God let this happen? Clearly Jesus loved Lazarus. Clearly Jesus loved Martha and Mary. Why did he let this happen? Why didn't he hear their prayer? Why didn't he do what they asked? Why didn't he immediately go? See, we adopt this if-then mentality. We adopt this logic where it's like, well, if God loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he would not have let this happen. If he loved them, if he was good, if, 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 this would not have happened this way because that's the logical progression. It's if then, right? We do that. We all do that. So why pray? Why pray if God is going to do what is according to his will? Then why pray? And this verse 37 says, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying, right? Why lift people and circumstances up to God if Jesus is just going to stay in Bethany two more days anyway? Why pray? God sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. Now, see, every one of us knows that view is wrong, right? Every one of us is going, no, Phil, that's not right. But it's hard to put our finger on why it's not right. And it is that if-then materialist logic. If I pray, God will. If I pray hard enough, loud enough, long enough, often enough, if I have enough faith, God will. It's a materialist view. It is praying to have power to manipulate God, to use God as a miracle-dispensing vending machine. Oh, I see. You finally push the right buttons that unlocks the heel of friend. Send it on down. We'll grab it right out of the bottom of the vending machine. You finally did it right. 
if we get enough people who have enough faith who say the right words, God will do what we want. It's a materialist if-then view of our faith. And it leads us to disappointment, doesn't it? When God doesn't do what we want, when God doesn't do what we expect, when tragedy strikes, suddenly our faith is rattled to the core, isn't it? Isn't it? Suddenly we're going, wait a minute, does God not love me? Does God not, you know, did God not hear me? Does God not listen to my prayer? Right? That's what it leads us to. That if-then materialist view leads us right to that place. So we have to change. We have to change how we're thinking. We have to pray to end suffering. We have to pray to know God's will. We have to pray to, that people would know God. And we have to pray for God to be glorified. See, I made a vow. I made a promise to love God with everything I have. So when we pray, I want to pray like I'm talking to my father, to my friend, who is also the creator of the universe. And when I worship, I want to show my love for God. And when I serve, whether it is teaching the word or meals or any other mission, I do so because I see my brothers and sisters suffering and I don't want them to suffer. So when we look at God that way, it changes the way that we view God in our prayer. And we want to change the way we view God in our faith. Mike Berry actually has a really great take on this whether the earth is old or new, whether life came through evolution or not, God did it. God is the author, the creator, the sustainer of everything that exists. And we are an expression of God's spoken word. So Jesus tells us about this miracle, 11.4. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Then he says, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. So that you may believe. These miracles serve the specific purpose of building the faith of the witnesses. John records seven public miracles in his gospel with the express purpose that you would know that Jesus is the Messiah that you would believe Jesus is the Messiah and in believing that you would have eternal life in his name. That is the ultimate purpose. The works illustrate what Jesus taught to the point that you can point to the works and say, do you believe or do you not? That's the whole point. If you go to John chapter 2, where, John, where Jesus turns the water into wine. And I want to point out real quick like a pattern. We're going to get there in just a little bit. But remember that Jesus says to the servants, that he's, right, he goes, go grab the jars, fill them with water, they fill them to the brim, right? The people do what they can do. God does what you cannot. So the servants, they get the jars, they fill them with the water to the brim. That's all they can do. But listen to John 2.11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, God's glory, and his disciples believed in him. God's glory and belief. The signs reveal God's glory and the disciples believed. John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. This is when Jesus heals the official son. Verse 48 says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. That's what it says. 
Then 53 says, Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, he said, Your son will live. So, because they had seen the sign, so he and his whole household believed. John chapter 5, this is where Jesus heals the paralyzed man. Verse 8, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. The man has to do his part, right? He can't, get, he can't heal himself, but he can pick up his mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Then Jesus tells him later, Go and sin no more. We don't know if he actually did that or not, but those are the commands that Jesus gives him. God has done what only God can do. The paralyzed man now has to do what he can do. But 536 says, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, do what? They testify that the Father has sent me. Because in chapter 5, Jesus gives us a foreshadow of what he's going to do with Lazarus, what he will do with himself, and what he will ultimately do with all of us. So if you had 519, it says, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. This is why we pray to know God's will, so that we can be like Jesus, doing what the Father desires. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Then flip on down to verse 25. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will what? They will hear the voice of the Son of God. In a minute, Jesus is going to say, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus is going to come out. They're going to hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. This is one of those places where Jesus does, does something that's so understated but so incredibly amazing. He creates finished bread and fish ex nihilo, out of nothing, out of absolutely nothing. But the disciples have to do their part, don't they? Little boy brings a basket, brings his lunch, and offers it up, right? Little boy can't, can't feed 5,000 people, but he can offer his lunch, can't he? The disciples have to do what? They pass the baskets around. They tell everybody to sit down in their groups, and they pass the baskets around. They can't create bread and, and fish out of nothing, but they can carry baskets, can't they? So when the people saw the sign, what happened? They began to believe. That's 616 uh, through 24. Uh, then uh, Jesus walks on the water in chapter, sorry, in, in, um, in chapter 6. The disciples are strengthened, right? When what? When they take Jesus into the boat. Then in uh, John chapter 9 is when Jesus heals the man born blind. And if we get, we've read this before, but listen to this. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's what it says, that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he goes on to say, I am the light of the world. Then we go to Lazarus in John chapter 11. And John 20, 30 tells us, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the purpose. Let's reinforce this. Because John has these seven miracles 
and he has seven I am statements. There's actually nine I am statements, but these seven I am statements in John. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life, and then he makes bread and fish out of nothing. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, and he opens the eyes of the man born blind. John 10, 7, I am the door. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then John 15, 1, I am the true vine. So how is John doing? Have you thought about what it means to be a follower of Christ on mission? Because Jesus has some questions for you. In verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this? We got to have Martha's answer. Verse 27, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Because then in verse 38, Jesus heads to the tomb. And notice the partnership. We can't raise the dead, but we can roll away the stone. And Martha, who's ever the practical one, she throws a flag on the field. She says, um, I just cleaned out my fridge not too long ago. And um, sir, if you open that door, you're going to smell something worse than my fridge. It's been four days. Probably don't want to do that. And then Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? It goes right back to four. Notice, for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So they took away the stone, verse 41. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. This prayer is for the witnesses. It's for us. And it answers a lot of questions about who Jesus is and about Jesus' relationship to God. Jesus, notice, is still thankful and reverent. Even in his perfect communion with the Father, Jesus, fully man and fully God, is reverent before God in prayer. I know that you always hear me. God always hears your prayers. And Jesus and God are of one mind. There is no conflict, no tug of war. There's no power transfer. Jesus isn't asking for the power for this resurrection. He isn't asking God to do it. He's going to do it. He is the resurrection and the life. That's what he says. Not, I give life. Not, I have the power of resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the concept that we have such a hard time grasping. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Not that light comes from me. Not that I create light. I am the light. When we can see, it's because Christ is there. Isn't that crazy? That is an absolutely amazing thing to think about. When we walk in the light, that is because Christ. No other answer. I am the light of the world. If we have life, if we draw breath today, it is because Christ, because Christ, he is the life. Anything that has life, anything that has breath, that is breath from the Lord. 
no other answer. He is the life. And Jesus restates the purpose. This prayer is that in this moment of words and in this work, that these witnesses would believe. Now, this audience is Jewish. Everyone here was a theist. They believed in God, and they believed in the God of the Bible. What they lacked was an understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. So his prayer is for those people to understand who he is, who Jesus is. Then Jesus spoke. And again, there is no power like this. For all of our hospitals, for all of our drugs, for our x-rays and, and CTs and ultrasounds and MRIs, for all the surgeries and transplants and treatments and infusions and IVs, this power is beyond us. We could argue in the other couple of resurrections that Jairus' daughter wasn't dead. You could argue that the widow's son wasn't dead. Both of those were immediately after. Not this one. Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. Then we turn to John 1, verses 1 through 4. We're just trying to get a glimpse at this power. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's who we're talking about. That is the power that is unleashed when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. It says, in a loud voice, in a loud voice. It's repeated. In a loud voice, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. The same voice that said, let there be light, and there was light. I have to tell you, I, I've been in construction for a long time. I have never, never done a job that was perfect. Never. I have never walked away from a job not thinking about three or four different things that could have been done better. Where I was inefficient, where I dropped things, where something went sideways, something got scratched, something wasn't exactly right. God creates nothing the way that I do. When he does it, it's perfect and it's right. When he speaks, galaxies form, oceans rise, mountains if we turn to Ezekiel chapter 37, just trying to give a glimpse, a small picture of what happened to Lazarus. It says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out of, by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophecy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. <clears throat> I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, 
a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophecy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will pull my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. So when Jesus heard this, he had said this, he called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Again, with that partnership, the heart of the mission, I can do what I can do. God does what only God can do. I can't heal the blind or turn water into wine or heal the paralyzed or walk on water or create bread from nothing. Only God can do those things. But I can wash, I can carry mats, I can fill jugs, I can pass baskets, I can roll stones, I can unbind my friend from their grave's clothes. So, what do you think? When did this miracle begin? When did it start? I think it started in Luke 10, 38. It says, As Jesus and his disciples were on the way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you were worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I think when Mary and Martha opened their home to Christ, this miracle was set in motion, that God's blessing poured out on this family. Now it takes both. Martha opened their home, and Jesus went. And from then on, Satan was after them, but so was God. And as I said, as we live, I think the divinity of the world becomes more and more apparent. I don't know about you guys. I don't believe in coincidence anymore. These seemingly random encounters are more like divine appointments, opportunities, or checkpoints, places where God has gone before us. The hand of God is working all around us, bringing us to where we need to be when we need to be there for his glory. So we'll close with a reaction. There are two reactions. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So when we encounter the miraculous, when God's words and his deeds wreck our understanding, how do we react? What do we do? 
How does that affect our mission? Do we get on mission? Do we think about our faith? Do we think about how we're going to proceed? Do we respond in fear or do we respond in faith? Do we respond with, yes, Lord, I'll do what I can? Or do we respond in anger? I hope we, hope we choose faith. Let's pray. Father, hey, Guy, come down here. Come here. We're going to pray over Guy real quick like with the surgery coming up. Anybody want to come? Yeah. Y'all are welcome if you want to. Father God, we rest in your power. We know that this world is yours, that everything that has breath is yours, that you are life, that you are light. Father, we... um, We just cast our lives on you that we know we got surgery coming up. We've got friends who are still in the hospital. Father, we're scared. We don't know what's coming next. We are seeking your will. We are seeking your blessing. We are seeking your healing. We are seeking that you would be glorified, that you would be magnified, that in your works, the people would know you, they would see you, and they would believe. So, this week with surgeries and with hospitals and with new babies that this week people would be touched, they would be changed, they would be led to you. Father, we do ask that just guide hands of our doctors and our nurses that they have the medicine and the techniques and the answers that they need. We cling so much to these wonderful people you have put in our lives. Please heal them up and get them back to us quickly. We ask all of that in the name of the great physician, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go next door. We can go fellowship. Maybe Rhonda has some pictures that she can show us.